This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the show. Today, it's one of our deep dives, discussions, close reads, extended time with an individual title. This time, um, it's it's a new title, one of our big book of 2020s of the year. We're going to do a few of these throughout the year. We did one already on Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, uh, Sharif and Vanessa, and I did that one. Um, we've done Kitchen Confidential, a 20-year look back. We've got some other ones down the pike. This one was voted on by um, the Insider Community, uh, narrowly edging out New Ways by Kevin Wynn, which I'm expecting in the mail today, frankly. I am halfway through it and really loving it. Yeah. So maybe maybe that'll be our next one. We could decide. I think that will come up for a vote um, in a little bit. But today's pick, today's subject, today's anxiety locus <laughs> is Weather by Jenny Offill, which the, sub, the subhead is a novel, which maybe is a place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a novel? What is this exactly? <laughs> Um, it is, whatever it is, it is the same form, medium, genre as uh, Department of Speculation, I would say. Well, maybe that's our first, but it, it, we can talk about that first. Um, but we're going to spend some time with it today. I guess before we do our first sponsor, um, our general impression, sort of in the thumbs up, thumbs down, Metacritic kind of way, Rebecca. You go <sighs> the biggest of thumbs up, and I think my text to you, I've read it twice now, mm. was this hit me right in the existentials. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's a gut punch, but not in a way sort of that sometimes is, uh, I don't know, characterizes a more maudlin or sentimental mm. kind of but gut punch, like your Pixar gut punch. Yeah, it's very validating. I have a lot oh, to Oh, that's say interesting. About that. Okay. Mm. Uh, I agree. I think it's uh, a, uh, a small miracle, uh, much like I thought Department of Speculation mm-hmm. is a minor miracle. Very, they, they work well as companion pieces, um, which we can talk about in a minute. So it is not a light read. It is an easy read. I I did it in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Um even the form is interesting. The Jenny Awful like size of these books is weird in its own yeah. way, which I'm not sure there's anything to say about there. So it gets our recommendation. We're beyond this, we're going to spoil the ever loving S out of this <laughs> book. So be warned. Um let's do a sponsor and we'll get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. 
there is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon-worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today, and it's the fifth book in the series, so make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Boy, how to start? I, I guess we should start with nominally the plot, like the cast of character, cast yeah. of characters or plot, or how should we start this? You know, I was thinking about when we talked about this on our um, winter preview of big books of 2020, I had read all I knew about the, the book was that I'd read the synopsis and that it was about a woman in basically her middle age who is a librarian who takes a part time job working for a previous mentor who hosts like basically a doomsday podcast answering this person's email. Um, and that she is that the main character, Lizzie is also like very enmeshed with her brother who's dealing with addiction, and is like functionally having an existential crisis. And at the time, I was like, well, this feels like it could be a breakout sort of book to the book club set because that's a really compelling yep. plot summary. Um, and that is what the book is about. But I think my prediction that this was a breakout to the book club set was probably wrong because it is also that signature, I think now signature sort of Absolutely. awful format and form that is vignette and in... Like very much in a character's head in a way that's not quite stream of consciousness, but is like the, these pages are very populated with mundane thoughts and mundane details of the character's life. And also like the biggest existential questions mm -hmm. that a human has and the ways that those things are connected and also the giant gaps that exist in between them. And so she, Lizzie is our main character. She is married to a guy named Ben. Lizzie's a librarian, a public librarian somewhere in New York. Or an academic um, librarian, I think, maybe? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're, yeah. you're right, yeah. It's a college. She's at a college, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. They have a son, a young son, and she has a brother um, who is at the start of the book um, in recovery from an addiction. They are very close in a way that I think you could fairly describe as codependent and a friend of hers in the story calls them enmeshed. Mm. Um, and she's weathering the like the storms of midlife and also trying to take in concepts of the future. Um, I think the title refers very overtly to the character's growing obsession with climate change mm -hmm. and the climate crisis, but also her internal emotional weather. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, there is a plot insofar as things ha it is 
except in memory, it does happen linearly, right? Like you move forward in time yeah. through mm-hmm. the book, though, because of the form, which was, vignette is a good way of putting it. The, I think it's almost like, it has the effect of almost like a daily journal, right? Yes. Like, but no one would actually write this, but it's like a sna- a journal, a novelistic approach to representing a character's interior in, in journal form of like 100 to 200 words a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the events are banal and meaningful. Sometimes the events are large or, or would seem to be large, but also don't feel meaningful at the same time. That tele- the telescoping way she goes between the banal and the ontological and back and yeah. forth in the same sentence There's... or same vignette and then turning them on the head, what seems banal is actually mm-hmm. super meaningful. And then one thing that might be super meaningful is actually turns out to be just a detail, really interesting. And I, and I think there's a mimetic quality we sh- I should talk about some of the influences too, and you can see them in the text mm-hmm. of oscillating before the mundane pieces of life with the existential questions and fears, anxieties, not a lot of hopes and dreams here, I should say, which maybe we should also talk about as yeah, well. But one thing the book does very well is collapse the scale of concern in a way that it feels real to me. Is that, is that fair to you? Yeah, no, I think it feels very real. There are all these scenes that I noticed on my first reading. Like I read it last month. And then once we knew the insiders had voted for it to be mm-hmm. the pick, I read it again in a way that I could really like dive in and take notes. But there are all these scenes where she's in the kitchen of her apartment that's too small and she's playing fetch with the dog mm-hmm. and fetch is called slobber frog presumably because <laughs> this is like a, a, a frog stuffed animal that the dog loves and it's disgusting and we're, we get that detail that she's like sitting in the kitchen having kind of a conversation with her husband while also being deeply in her head about the anxiety of the moment while throwing this slobbery frog toy over and over and over until either the dog gets tired or she gets tired or their son asks for something. And it feels very much like not like fly on the wall. It feels like if you mounted a camera in a normal home and just watched people live their lives, this is like what the reality show would actually be is Mm. here we are talking about what to cook for dinner and who's going to go pick up milk and the dog is playing fetch and won't leave me alone and the kid needs something. Meanwhile, in my head, everything is a disaster and you can't tell from looking. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the... One And um, she overtly mentions the character, I should say, mentions looking up Virginia Woolf's journals mm-hmm. to see Virginia Woolf talk about, write about how she was feeling on her specific birthdays. And the character Lizzie does the same thing. And I don't think it's an accident that Virginia Woolf is called by name here. It's a version of stream of consciousness mm-hmm. of a kind, but it's more like stream of stream of existence more than yeah. stream of consciousness because sometimes she's playing Slobber of the Frog and, you know, just kind of getting through the time, and there may not be much else going on in her head, and sometimes there is. Or mm-hmm. sometimes she might be, like, thinking about maybe having an affair with some dude at a bar, but then she's not actually interested in that, and she's actually thinking about something else um, at the same time. So there's a disassociation I know has its own specific term of art in clinical discourse, but I think in this case there is a disassociation or a... It's not really correlating what you're doing with what's going on with you, I think, is part of what's happening here. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to describe it. Like, uh, 
I, d- I made a note about the opening line of the book, yeah, which is remarkable. I have that too. I have that too. Let's do that. <laughs> it, in the morning, the one who is mostly enlightened comes in. Right. And the rest of the first page of the book is entirely the character just describing to us the people that she serves in her day at the library. And we don't know at first that that's how she's interacting with these people. We definitely don't know that at the point that she says in the morning, the one who is mostly enlightened comes in, but just her lens on these other humans and the way that she's watching them um, tells us so much about her experience of the world uh, and the questions I think that she's asking about her own mm-hmm. humanity and her own existence and what what it all means. Um, the first book and or the first line and the last line of this book are pretty killer. I have to say. Yeah. So she the the librarian position is interesting, right? Because she is mostly a witness to the comings and goings of others. We don't actually get a lot of her doing librarian things, right? She is mostly yeah, kind of... very little like shelving. Is like happening. a Cheshire cat almost just sitting there and having some... Um, a Cheshire cat is even maybe more chaotic neutral than uh, Lizzie <laughs> is. But sitting there watching people come and go and watching their periods of sobriety, their periods of anxiety, their, you know, the the way you watch people over time that you see often but don't know. And I, I'm yeah. guessing librarians have a lot of these people. I'm guessing if you work in restaurants and other situations where you have repeated but superficial contact with members of the public writ large, you can have these sorts of impressions of people and even a minor relationship in a way. But the thing that defines the series of relationships is their fleetingness, their in and outness, mm-hmm. uh, the lack of, of real connection. Um, the core delusion, we got to save that. We can't, that's yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we can't the, talk about, we can't save talk about the that end. yet. <laughs> um, so, okay. So she's a librarian. We should talk a little bit about Lizzie herself as a character mm-hmm. that she's an academic librarian is part of it. Um, she got that position because she seems to be a, some sort of failed academic, uh, who, has half a dissertation somewhere that she wrote for Sylvie or Sylvia. Is it Sylvia or Sylvia? Sylvia. Sylvia, who is a academic celebrity of a kind, um, who, a philosopher, cultural critic. What is, I was like, what is, what department is Sylvie in? That's one question I had throughout the text. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Because Sylvie is hosting a podcast that has episodes with titles like The Center Cannot Hold. Mm -hmm. And and Lizzie tells us they could all be called that. And I think that... (laughs) (laughs) Like that, like, and that laugh right there is so core to how Jenny Offal's work functions and like how she does what she does is that these stories, I think it's true for Department of Speculation. And I totally agree that Department of Speculation and weather are really fascinating companion pieces, that these are quiet, serious books, but they are also deeply funny in both dark and light ways Mm. that the characters see the world in this way that identifies humor and pathos and just like stuff that's funny sad but also just funny funny and also a lot of stuff that's just sad sad or difficult or weird and it just feels it this feels so true to life like one of the very first notes that I made about the book is it feels very validating to read a literary novel about a woman's midlife crisis mm. that puts us in the woman's head and in the realities of her 
existence. Like, this is totally real and believable. There are women all over the place living this life of going to work, observing these people, being surrounded by people, but feeling very lonely, like sort of existential searching and seeking is a theme through this. And there's this meditation group that meets at the library. And sometimes Lizzie goes to it. And sometimes she doesn't. And she's trying the chance, but they also freak her out. And <laughs> there's all this like alienation and loneliness that runs through it. And she manages to talk about it in a way that feels really honest. I think it's a really brave thing to take on as a writer because certainly people are assuming that this is born out of Jenny Awful's experience and perspective at some point. Like I texted you, I was going like, to say, Jenny should we talk about okay? the, the text that you sent me in, in <laughs> yeah. some near kind of literary desperation, which is, is Jenny Awful okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, and why did you, so you, you sort of, but why, why is, so you're in the implication there is that Lizzie is not okay, and that Lizzie is some manifestation of a real state of some or all of Jenny Offal's experience, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think Lizzie's having a midlife crisis, like, or she's teetering on the edge of it. You know that um, so much of her energy is given to these these people that she deals with at the library, this coworker who had an injury that they carry around the x-rays and show everybody. Yeah, that's a great um, example. You know, the moms at the school who are obsessed with their children's achievement. Um, the brother who takes up so much of her time and space and she knows it's taking up too much of her time, but she also can't convince herself that it's okay to get out. The obsession with doomsday, like prepper stuff that she develops while working mm -hmm. for Sylvia. Like she's looking into the abyss. Yep. And 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 you're and you mentioned also like thinking about having this affair with this like interesting stranger that she meets at the neighborhood bar. And she doesn't have the affair with him, but she's like getting drunk enough to the point that her like primary topic of conversation I wish I had written the line down but it's like the joke is you should go home when three people tell you that you're drunk yes and and she's like and also because my go-to topic of conversation has become this thing that's also like really boring and mundane and that's a that's a sign that like Lizzie you gotta Lizzie's not living anything for Lizzie I feel like Lizzie needs a needs to like feed herself in some way what Lizzie wants <laughs> I think hangs over the book yeah, and and hangs yeah. over Lizzie, and I, I don't think it's like a mis mistake. I don't think it's it's a it's an intentional omission, right? That Lizzie's right. desire is to have desire almost. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason she she goes through the motions of having. I wouldn't even call it an emotional affair. You know that term gets thrown around sometimes too. Yeah. It's more of an existential affair, like hoping yeah. that it'll make her feel. Well, she already feels things, but hoping it will dislodge her from a kind of morass uh, that she doesn't know the origin of nor the way out of. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go to a cliche bourgeois thing you do when you're in the middle of a midlife crisis is you have an affair. Her other choice would be to buy a sports car, I guess. Mm -hmm. But even yeah. that isn't enough. Even that's not right. And this is, yeah. he's almost the platonic ideal of someone you have an affair with. He's, at some point, the, uh, one of the many essays to write about this, or he could use this as an example of, is like the the erotic quality of war journalists like yeah. that's something that's that's gets thrown around along people that travel and go to places of great distress cata catalog it and then come back their moments of coming back are like sailors on shore leave but for people who encounter them like it's a license to think of differently and imagine differently mm -hmm. so he set up as sort of a almost stereotypical subject of an affair um he knows she's married there's no real threat 
that her spouse would find out if she didn't want him to. Um, and yet she still doesn't do it for reasons I don't quite have a good handle on, but I don't think she does either. Like, if she could change one thing about her life tomorrow through magic, I don't think she'd know what to tell the genie after she read the lamp. Do you? Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I think she's, I think it's very meaningful that the whole first page of the book and then many pages thereafter are given to Lizzie's description of the people around her and that Lizzie is largely absent and invisible Mm -hmm. from a lot of the story, from a lot of the sort of obsessive things that happen in the book. She doesn't know what she wants. I don't think she's even totally sure that she feels bad. She just... that's interesting. She's just like, I think she's kind of in a place of like, this is where it is. And I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how to get out. And you're right. She starts poking at like, should I have an affair? Should I like change careers? Should I question all of the things? And even the possibility of doing that seems like too much work. Mm -hmm. Like there would be and and she explicitly says that of like, I don't want to like she's thinking about the affair. And that guy, but also about how much her, like all the years she's invested with her husband and how he knows her. And she basically says, like, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't have the time or the energy to like try to build up that much goodwill with someone else. Mm -hmm. It's just very static. Her life is very static in this way that I don't know that she's, I don't know that she's sure she wants to change it. She's also just not sure that she can stay there. There's a moment where someone asks her, like, is this really the room you want to spend your life in? Mm. And I was like, oh. And her husband, it's interesting to look at their relationship because on the surface, at least, and maybe even beyond the surface, it's not a bad one. He's not a bad guy. I'm not sure he's the most exciting guy in the world, um, though neither is she the most exciting woman in the world, they seem mm-hmm. to have a good rapport. Uh, it, what was your sense of their relationship? Yeah, I think it's also just very like static and settled, perhaps like yeah. complacent. Um, there, but with an appreciation for each other. Like she makes a there's a reference at one point to how like she's wearing I think a pair of yes his, his old long boxers. johns great line yeah right it's it's cold outside she's wearing a pair of his long johns they're in bed together and she's like so then we joke about how marriage is taking your underwear off of someone else and then yeah. we fool around and then we go to bed happy right like, he makes a they, move on her and she, he's like wait are those my long johns and right. it becomes a sort of metaphor. For for a familiarity that borders on a kind of despair. Is familiarity a kind of despair here, I guess, is the right. question. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it. Um, there's a like researcher, a therapist, and writer named Esther Perel, who like the body of her work, and she hosts a bunch of podcasts. She's written a bunch of books. But she talks about um, functionally desire, and she talks about how like it, the problem with domestic arrangements is that like domesticity kills desire but the thing that we want from a domestic arrangement is like security and that like security and predictability and familiarity are things that we need but also things that we don't want because Mm -hmm. they kill desire and it's really hard to balance the two of those and I think that Lizzie is experiencing that that her relationship is mature enough and they're in this place where they have a young child and these demands from other people in their families and the world is just scary like climate change is happening and where are you going to build your doomstead and who are you inviting to it Mm. and then how do how do you like manage to um 
casually mention to someone that you've these are all super there. healthy ideations, <laughs> right. right? This is what that you they're do invited when you're doing to well. your doomstead, yeah, right. right? Like these are not healthy. But then she has these observations of like, funny how when you're married, all you want is to be anonymous to each other again. But when you're anonymous, all mm. you want is to be married and reading together in bed. Yeah. And I think she's just sitting in these the core tension of these choices that we make about our lives that make you like you you commit to be very settled. But one of the consequences of being very settled and committed and not being a war journalist who's trotting around Mm -hmm. is the desire to be do out doing something adventurous and when you are out doing something adventurous there's a loneliness and alienation to that as well like i i really i think this is a book about loneliness and alienation and how they are inescapable parts of the human experience and that somehow jenny awful manages to make that like warm and not completely terrifying yeah i don't know i it ultimately (laughs) comes across as very cold to me and maybe it has to do with the desire but the other thing is lizzie doesn't like to do anything yeah there's nothing she likes to do i mean this is this is putting it very sort of grossly depressed (laughs) well yeah right but it's not a book about depression though like that's a different book right yeah i mean this is existential existential philosophical questions i think are distinct from a clinical diagnosis of depression, are they not? Or, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe that's interesting to explore. Yeah, I think they're tangled up in yeah. each other, that at least a component of depression is, you know, not enjoying the things you used to enjoy or not enjoying But what did she things, ever used period. to enjoy? I guess that's my other... We never get a scene of why you really used to like to go out to the bar, because even this bar she used to go to, her description of it when she used to go to it was not full of, you know, mm-hmm. nostalgia or anything like this. She doesn't have any warm memories of her and Ben's courtship, you know... Sometimes when you have kids, you enjoy them sometimes, and we don't see any of that here. Um, And and I don't know, like maybe there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation going on, and I think maybe that's as much of the subject as whether or not she has anything she likes. Is she in the philosophical, ruminative, disaffected state she's in because that's the state she's in, or is it connected to the quote-unquote weather, the weather being climate change, the weather being Trump, the weather being what's actually happened to her life, the weather being her own stasis, right? She didn't finish her degree. She didn't go out and try to do something else. She had this other job handed to her and she took it and she doesn't seem to like it. She doesn't seem to dislike it. Um, I would prefer not to prefer to quote Bartleby the Scrivener Mm -hmm. is kind of the state she seems to be in. Yeah. There's this great line where she says, uh, young person worry. What if nothing I do matters? Old person worry. What if everything I do does Mm -hmm. and i think she's in that place of everything feels like it carries so much weight that it's immobilizing yeah right right the only thing that doesn't carry weight is going through the motions of playing slobber frog and that that could be a metaphor for almost everything she does she plays slobber frog versions of with her husband with her kid with her job with her mentor Mm -hmm. and with herself she's kind of going just through slobber frog like i guess this is what i'm doing right now because I don't know what else to do or is the easy thing to do. That part, I think, is both relatable and extremely frustrating. And maybe that's the frisson that's exciting. About yeah. It. Yeah, I think so. Like, you know, I don't want to be friends with Lizzie. No. Like, Lizzie's the person that I would 100% be like, girl, therapy. You know? <laughs> like She's not that's... in therapy, right? No. I was going to ask you about that. And she <laughs> seems to have a sleeping pill problem that she sloughs off. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's something about like a, a nice thing about being addicted to sleeping pills is that, like... They call can... it habituated rather than addicted. That was right. a good one. <laughs> yeah, a good there's, there's good lines there. And 
a thing that I really appreciated about this is that Lizzie's wrestling with, like, as you were saying, like the the literal weather with climate change, but also sort of the weather of society mm. and um, the question of whether like this time and these technologies that we have are actually different from things that existed in the past right. or changes that occurred in the past, or if they're just the current iteration of the same old changes and the same old fears. And there's this moment where she's talking to a patron at the library, a young woman who talks, who's <laughs> yeah. telling her, like this young woman's telling her about how like her phone broke. And so she's using an older phone and it's slower. And she knows that she's missing out on things because she doesn't have like the speed of all of the, you know, the newest model of iPhone or whatever. And Lizzie's imagining that this woman is like carrying around a flip phone and it turns out that she's just using like two models back and she's like oh you're talking about seconds you're talking yes. about like your phone is 10 seconds slower yes. than someone else's and that you think you're missing out on it but also that it's making up that like those seconds are making up a meaningful difference in slowing you down mm. and she says something kind of related to this to her husband who's like well people are always worried about people have always been worried about these kinds of changes like when we got electricity people were worried that it was going to alienate family members from each other because they wouldn't have to like sit around a candle together anymore and um clive thompson talks about this in smarter than you think how um which i loved several years back about like and then when the when tv came out and replaced the radio people had the same worries Mm -hmm. when the telephone came out we were worried that people wouldn't talk to each other in person anymore like wouldn't go out in public because they could talk to each other on the phone and like none of these technologies yet has been the thing that caused utter alienation but that doesn't mean one of them won't be and how do you know right well and they also haven't saved us right that's the other that's the flip side of that they haven't ruined Mm -hmm. or saved us and that we're still in the same place asking the same questions that Virginia Woolf was asking in a lot of different ways is the text here. Let's take another break and then let's come back and talk about some some more metaphors. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, long after we are gone by Tara Shelton Harris, 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right. It's English major corner time. <laughs> so, well, it's not, I'm not sure it's a metaphor, except that maybe it might be both both a metaphor and it, it, both, by, mo, both might be implicit and explicitly itself and the sign of itself, climate change, right? Mm-hmm. That's a real issue. Uh, it is a real issue in the real world. and I, But I think it s- serves a purpose that's both real and um, a sign in this book, which is it is an excuse. It's an obsession. Mm-hmm. It's a external factor you can affix anxiety and immobi- immobility to, right? Um, right? She can be obsessed with climate change and kind of uses as a excuse to throw your hands up and say, well, we're all going to be dead, but what's the year, 2047 anyway, when you do climate departure? Nothing's going to matter because of climate change. So then why should anything matter now? So let's play slobber frog until we run out the clock. That seems to be kind of an internal feedback loop that's happening here. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. And also that it that climate change as a concept for her serves as a dumping ground yeah, for, right. for the anxiety and a way to feel like you're doing something. But what does she, what um, do we mean by that? What does she do? I guess uh, she's thinking about how oh, she's going to prepare, right. you know, like, and like falling down the rabbit hole of prepper stuff on the internet, which related. And I wish that I had thought to send it to you before we recorded mm. this, but it's worth finding Lauren Groff went to prepper camp and wrote mm. a huge piece about it. I think for vanity fair, um, interesting time. Timing to read that right yes, now. Yes. Yeah. Really interesting timing to read that and on the heels of um, this book. But uh, that sense of like people are prepping because it makes them feel that they can control yes. something that's fundamentally uncontrollable. Like we, whatever damage we have done to the climate that is going to have consequences, we cannot undo that damage or avoid those consequences. We can prevent future damage. But the folks who are out doomsday prepping are not working. No, they're not prevent... advocating. They're not planting trees or doing right. whatever they're right. supposed to They're be not doing. decreasing their carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. They're buying up every canned good that they can find and stocking up on guns because it makes them feel like they have control. And I think that she's drawn to that. And we we don't get to see her like go fully into that mode. But she's thinking about it like she thinks about her doomstead and she thinks about where it would be and how do you pick a location and who would she invite to it and then how do you tell someone like i i loved that line about like then how do you tell someone that you've been thinking about this enough it's like if if seinfeld met camus that's like how do you invite (laughs) someone to your doomstead right or that like hey hey by the way jeff you made the cut (laughs) to my doomstead (laughs) it's like like harder than saying who's not invited to your small wedding who's not invited to your yeah and i think she both recognizes on some level that like this is not normal that like the way she's engaging with this idea and this fear is not normal or healthy but also 
she's doing it anyway and it feels good on some level to ask like it's like poking a bruise I think that like it's terrifying to ask these questions and think about it but it also makes her feel like she's doing something Mm -hmm. when she's not like she's just running in place playing slobber frog well and it's also not dissimilar she's she's also sort of trying on identities or ways of being that might help her feel differently than she does it's not unlike the existential affair she's sort of trying on the idea of mm-hmm. being a prepper. She tries yeah. on the idea yeah. of being um, the kind of person who's into meditation and yoga. And none right. of them quite... A, so she's, she's probing for something else, not knowing really what she's looking for. She's, so her desire is low level. It's yeah. like, it's des- like I said, it's desire for desire. Yeah, I think she would like, like to feel exhilarated by the idea of being a prepper. Right? Yeah. She'd like yeah. to she just be can't thrilled go by having the affair. Yeah. yeah, she can't. Yeah, and she she mm. says, I think when she's thinking about the affair, she says, I have to be careful. My heart is prodigal. Yeah. And I don't think she's talking about her romantic life no. there. Like, this is not a person who's had a string of affairs. or And if she's had a series of temptations for affairs, we don't know about it on the page. But I, I think she feels that her heart is prodigal in the sense of that she can be, like, easily pulled into a bunch of these different things because she doesn't know what she wants she doesn't know the answer to her questions or the way to make herself feel better so every solution that yeah. someone else offers is something that she explores and you're right like some days it's the meditation class and some days it's the doomstead prepper thing and some days it's having this sort of sparkly interaction with this journalist that may that makes her consider like maybe that's the thing maybe mm-hmm. I should have an affair um, maybe I should meditate maybe I should become a doomsday prepper and that's I think an interesting insight to have about herself especially given that she isn't actually being careful (laughs) well but she's not really doing anything I mean is she not being careful she doesn't really do Uh, anything she's like being I guess she's being careful but she's also being too careful Uh, she's restless without being brave I think in a sort of kind of a way um yeah and I think we there's just she has this like floating dread about the future. Um, Yeah. And it's looking for an outlet and looking for some way. She's looking for a way to either like make peace with the things that are uncontrollable and 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 dreadful or avoid them or distract herself or some maybe all of the above. And I don't think that we can talk about it. With like any more without also addressing the political pieces because that right and yeah. that almost it comes relatively late in the book for some reason mm-hmm. I had a mental model of what the book was about and I thought it was more about Trump but the climate change stuff kind of morphs into Trump being the weather right like mm-hmm. Trump be it becomes the more eminent and imminent top level condition under which she and Ben and others are operating and it it induces a precipitous change. Though I think it just makes people more so. It makes Sylvie more so. It makes Ben mm-hmm. more so. It makes Lizzie more so. I, the switch from the, the the climate change piece to being the object of dread to Trump being the object of dread, I have to admit I'm not sure exactly what to do with. Um, are they co-extant in sort of the philosophical role they play in her life? Like how is Trump different than climate change when it comes to how Lizzie sees the world is one question I had. Mm. I think it feeds into her sense of like not being able to control anything mm-hmm. and the like this alienation and loneliness and i like 
I, I have like deep trauma from the election night of 2016. Yes. And, and I was not expecting to hit a page where she's sitting there and her husband is saying her, to her, like the path is narrows. Narrower. That brought and up a specific no, feeling for me too. Yeah. A, a there's memory feeling. Yeah. There's no like warning or context that we're shifting now mm-hmm. to election night. There's no chapter. You're header. not even sure what they're talking about at first. I think. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. just all of a sudden Ben is telling her the path is getting narrower, but it could still be possible, but it's, it's getting narrower. They stay up to watch until the end. Like that exact conversation happened in my house before I was, you know, crying mm. on the floor for hours. And then it's, you know, right after it, people having conversations about all the things that they're afraid about. Women going to get IUDs yeah. because those will last for five to eight years. And maybe by then this whole thing will be over and, you know, our reproductive rights won't be threatened anymore. And how she talks about this with... um Oh, I can't remember who is it the journalist that she's talking about it with? And she said like he remarks oh. that it's similar to she's talking about it to somebody and how it's similar to what happened on 9-11. And he tells her, Your people have finally fallen into history. You finally mm. understand like what people around the world have been feeling. And then that, you know, Ben is trying not to hear his voice. She doesn't name Trump at all. She just says he's trying not to hear his voice. Um she suspects everyone around her of being one of the betrayers who would have, you know, would have voted for him. She's looking at everyone. I remember the similar sideways. feeling getting on a plane, Me, like 46% yeah. of UMFers yeah. voted for this guy. Yeah. Right. And like, uh, I've, I have spent the last like several years trying not to hear mm-hmm. his voice as well. That just really rang true. And when the journalist tells her about like, oh, there's this behavior, it's called milling where people just wander around like yeah. after, after a crisis or right after the moment of a disaster trying to like find something to do with themselves and also their hackles are all up and everyone is like defensive and worried and ready to attack because they feel like they've just been attacked it was like so visceral that i was like oh boy yeah yeah it was very i haven't seen the portrayal of that moment in time is it it's continues to this day to some degree, but I'd say what six to eight weeks after the election, especially like yeah. really the election through February after the inauguration, in mm-hmm. which it was really I don't know if it was more I still I guess shock in the the stages yeah. of grief we were still in the shock page, and she talks about another context. You know, most people they don't actually panic when a crisis happens; they mm-hmm. do nothing. They, they just right. stand there, and I think that's talking to some degree about what Lizzie's doing. She's in her own mm-hmm. kind of panic that actually looks like stasis. And yeah. only in a larger, with a larger frame, a, a wider angle lens, can you see that she's in a slow motion panic attack, uh, mm-hmm. which with no foreseeable end and maybe yeah, only an it's, acceleration. It's like existential milling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's 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 kind of what I was getting from it too. And it's it's so you know I've marked several individual vignettes. I'd like to talk about four more in a second mm-hmm. too. But let's do one more sponsor before um, we do. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. 
and after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. That. So in, in, the, in the guise of tr- trying on a bunch of available answers, right? She's, mm-hmm. she's trying the answer to what is the meaning of life in a lot of different ways. Being a mother, being a spouse, being a professional person, um, having an affair, being a brother, being a help to other people people, being a person in the world. But I really loved, and I think it sets up well, the kind of, there's a jokiness to some of the vignettes, Mm -hmm. but also a structural sympathy for the joke as form that she uses and deploys in ways that aren't actually a joke. So here's one, I'll read the whole thing. Um, I don't tell Ben much about these letters. At this point, she's answering letters to her mentor, Sylvie, who gets a bunch of crank email letters about her podcast. He would not be pleased by the nature of these questions. We are already worried the evangelicals are trying to take over everything, in cahoots, <laughs> of course, with the Jews for Jesus. There, there's that one who parks himself by the Dunkin' Donuts on weekends. Excuse me, did you know that Jesus Christ was Jewish? He asks us when we pass. Yep, we tell him. Also, we have heard the good news. And as, everyone, <laughs> as has everyone else on the whole planet, including those hunter-gatherers who live deep in the rainforest <laughs> and were trying for no contact, just once, I wish someone would say that and that the good news would turn out to be something else. So, like, <laughs> it's funny, right? Like, it's a joke, it's sad, it's dark, and it's funny. It's so true. And it's kind of true. Like, yeah, it would be great if it's not news anymore, and it actually turns out that it wasn't that good for most people on the right. whole. And she's, but what she's saying is the available answers to her aren't any good. Religion's yeah. not an answer. Politics mm-hmm. aren't an answer. Um, academia is an answer. Received, heteronormative, nuclear, whatever, is not an answer. Being a sibling isn't an answer to whatever that question is she's looking for. She's looking for something, but everything that's available to her, that meditation isn't the answer. Uh, it's fascinating to see them go, her go through the process of trying out what other people find satisfying, ameliorating, pacifying to be ungenerous or uplifting to be super generous and none of it's working and none of it's working and it's almost like a call for a a new religion or a new way of being in the world um or is it the existential apocalypse that precedes the real apocalypse i think that's also something that's in the Mm -hmm. back of her mind is like maybe none of this works because there's nothing that can work 
There is nothing. There is nowhere to go. That's why there's yeah, nowhere think, to go. I think that's a question that hovers over the whole text. Is like, is this just another crisis, both in the world and in Lizzie as a person, or yeah. is this the one? Mm-hmm. Like, is this the thing that actually will lead to the end? Yeah, and she seems to. Well, we'll get to the end in a minute, but let's not do that quite yet. Can we talk about the form, the Jenny Awful? Yeah. Whatever mm-hmm. this is, what, why, why, why does this work for her? Why choose this? What are the strengths and weaknesses of this? I don't, I don't know. And I don't know that it could be. Vignette journal entry that's broken up by these three dots. Um, mm-hmm. What can we say about this? I think that's about, I think that she has mastered, at least for her and the, the stories that she tells and the characters that she presents, how much information about one moment to show us in that, Mm. about that character. Like here is the moment in the kitchen with the slobber frog and the other things that are happening. Here is the next moment in the car coming back from work and it's hot and the car service is crappy, but she pays anyway because she feels guilty for this guy and she's sweating, you know, Mm. like, and here's the next thing. And it's just enough for us to feel like we know her and we're in her head Mm -hmm. but not so much that it's overly familiar and you get tired of her like lizzie constantly i i don't want to be on the receiving end of lizzie's constant stream of consciousness in the same for the same reasons that like i don't want to be friends with this character it's exhausting there's sort of nothing uplifting about her existence or like positive or nourishing that you could hook onto about being in Lizzie's presence. Mm. And I think these little vignettes work because it's like, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit B, here's exhibit C, carry on for 200 pages. Now you know this person. Yeah. Um, But in a way that's not overwhelming, like no one bite is too overwhelming. Yeah. So rather being a stream of consciousness, it's almost like you're looking at Polaroids of consciousness kind of set out on the table where... They're all there, and they seem meaningful, and you can put them together in your head to tell a story, but the, par, their disintegration is part of the story. That There's not a yeah. whole, there's not a fluidity to experience, and that's part of what Lizzie, I think, is struggling with, is that the various pieces of her life do not feel, they do not form a Voltron of a whole life that's sustaining. Mm-hmm. They are pieces of various lives that she plays slobber frog and does other things, but add it up, it still feels fractured. It still feels mm-hmm. not enough. It's a collection of Polaroids, not a record of someone. It's not the interiority of someone's life that she's And I think, seeing. yeah, and I think there's enough, like, we can see enough that Lizzie's funny. Like, yes. there's enough humor on the page and a, enough moments then that are unpresented from her life that, like, I... I imagined that there were moments where she and Ben like liked playing with their kid yeah. and where they were laughing together. And like that, that great moment in when they're in bed and like joking about taking off your mm-hmm. own underwear <laughs> from her partner is it just feels so like grounded in the reality of a long committed relationship that I, I think there's, there's warmth there for the people in her life. And she is funny. And I imagine that there are funny, lighter moments, but that the, like the weather is 
the rainy days in her weather are so rainy and yeah. compelling that she doesn't look at the sunny days yeah. and that we don't have a sense of how often is it raining. Yeah, I think it, at various times, Lizzie would be a wonderful hang to, to use yeah, a very yes. sort of like uh, <laughs> gross, not gross, but like a ham-fisted sort of description of like what she might like. On the other time, she sounds like a real drag. Um, yeah. It got me thinking a little bit too of in um, Crime and Punishment, one thing Dostoevsky does is the main character, Raskolnikov, whatever, it's, it doesn't really matter so far. But one thing he does is he, he kind of sets up other characters as the book as possible ways of being for Raskolnikov that he doesn't mm-hmm. choose, but also, you know, what choices that Raskolnikov could make that he doesn't for various reasons. So I think that's interesting to think about. She could have chosen the Sylvie path. Like that's a, that's right. a way she could have gone. I think there's a very real sense. She could have gone her brother Henry's path of, mm-hmm. of addiction of a kind uh, for her, but he's actually addicted to what is it? We're not exactly sure. I think I'm not sure we're not told. It doesn't really matter. Um, he's going to NA, not AA, so it's drugs rather than alcohol. Yeah, I think it's pills. She could have gone the direction of the the war photographer, right? She could have mm-hmm. done that direction, but she exists in this sort of half existence. She is a librarian who gets looked down upon by other librarians because she doesn't have the right degree. So, in a very real sense, she's a, she's either chosen or fallen into an interstitial space between all of these different things that she could have chosen. And she didn't, but she's still in contact with them. So there's very much, she's sort of in limbo or purgatory. There's some other kind of weird suspended existence she's living because she still is in contact with all these futures, but hasn't picked one of them, nor has she disavowed any of them, which I think is really interesting at the same yeah. time. I think in a lot of ways, she's just taken the path of least resistance. Yeah, and right. For a woman in America in the age range that we understand Lizzie to be, which is what we haven't said that, but maybe for the listeners, like I, I put her like early to mid forties. Yeah, I think when she talks about Virginia Woolf, she's Virginia Woolf, forty four, forty four. But I wasn't sure that that was the birthday or was just implied. Is that she? Yeah, and the the path of least resistance for for a woman in for a white woman in that age group Mm -hmm. is you are married, you have a kid, the kid is primary over your career desires um and we don't get like math on the page about how if or how having the child tied in with her not finishing her dissertation we don't get much about the not finishing the dissertation which is interesting but it's like it's totally possible that the desire to have a family or accidentally Mm -hmm. having a family was tied up in there maybe not but like this is what the path of least resistance looks like and it feels like the easiest thing at the time because it's the path of least resistance but you end up with a lot of resistance and she she puts on the page at one point i think in the meditation group a really like well-known buddhist Um, equation that suffering equals pain pain plus resistance Mm -hmm. the implication being that if you find a way to like accept your pain or work with your pain or like acknowledge that pain is a part of life and just like look at the pain and feel the pain and let it be there then at least it's like you have that pain but you don't have pain on top of pain and she can't do that like she took the path of least resistance and it turns out that like all of the things at the end of that are pain (laughs) right well then (laughs) congratulations now you just have pain i mean that right one of the (laughs) difficult things i think for people to i'll throw myself into this boot is really just pain accepting pain that's the that's the enlightenment i mean i'm sure it's worked for a lot of people they find it very helpful but it is a sort of cold calculation right it's like well at least you won't be suffering you'll just be in pain yeah but she's suffering, though, right? I mean, she is. She's yeah, resisting she's at suffering. some level. It's just not in the. 
It's not in the outward forms. Outwardly, there's not much resistance, but her soul, her psyche, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, is resisting yeah, the life she's chosen, yeah, been forced she, to, you know, railroaded into mm-hmm. whatever you want to say. Like, I think she doesn't go to in the book, but that like my own experiences with like meditation teachers, I've encountered folks who talk about like that the way to fix resistance is not to try to be more accepting, but to notice what you're resisting Mm. and see what happens then just once you notice that you're resisting the thing. And I think that that's what it is, is that she can't quite look at the fact that she's resisting that she doesn't like her life. Like Mm -hmm. she's sort of looking at it out of the corner of her eye. All of these choices that she made are really these places that she ended up by default of not making choices. And she can't outright say, I'm unhappy. I want to change something. It's this resistance to like the reality of where she is. And she's just running in circles, trying to find some way to make that current, the, the current life and the current reality be bearable Mm -hmm. or and and that's critical like people talk about unbearable and then they get corrected in this meditation yeah right right it's barely bearable it's not unbearable it's barely barely bearable bearable. you're you're do and i think that's where she is is her life is just barely bearable Mm. and that has she's trying to talk herself into that being enough yeah i mean interesting the language of you know hope or change or improvement or healing is largely absent. I mean, I think it's interesting that awful, I think is satirizing a church basement version of Eastern Uh religion. Is that your sense of what she's doing here too? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, We better wrap up. Um, We, I think we get, I'm not sure what to call the turn at the end. Mm. Um, The last sentence is, uh, I'll read the whole last vignette. Uh, the dentist gave me something so I won't grind my teeth in my sleep. I consider putting it in, decide against it. My husband is under the covers reading a long book about an ancient war. He turns out the light, arranges the blankets so we'll stay warm. The dog twitches her paws softly against the bed, dreams of running of other animals. I wake to the sound of gunshots. Walnuts on the roof, Ben says. The core delusion is that I am here and you are here, are there. What in the actual F? I mean, <laughs> there's a way in which it's awful in a nutshell, in a walnut shell, I guess, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the daily minutia of going to the dentist and getting a recommendation but not doing it, I think, is telling in its own way. Um, a, a scene of familiar and even comforting domesticity, even with an underlayer of anxiety, because if she thinks she hears the sound of gunshots, she at least thinks there's a possibility they are gunshots. And then the reassurance from those close to you that everything's okay. And then that reassurance ultimately only masking the greater problem of either existence at all or that the separation I feel is real. That we are either Mm -hmm. here together and we are together and that I feel that we're not is the problem or that neither of us are here and we're all in a robot simulation, Elon Musk style or something, I guess, <laughs> right? What, I, I'm not yeah, I sure mean, what to do with this, except the structural peach, which is, like we said at the beginning, the disjunction between the embodiment of being in bed and hearing walnuts and the dog, and you could have your mouth guard right next to you, and I sleep with a mouth guard on my table, <laughs> that lives right next to the, isn't it weird that the universe exists, <laughs> right? That kind of like thing, which is so disorienting to yeah, be confronted is, with, not in your own head. I think. Yeah, it it is weird. And I think it's, I think that is what Jenny Offal, it's one of the things that she does so well is take these very 
esoteric, like high-minded concepts about spirituality and existence and put them right into how normal people experience them mm. that like this the core delusion that i am here and you are there this, this like this is a very like not only buddhist but just sort of eastern religious concept this is core to like concepts of yoga that separation the like the illusion of separation is what causes pain and that if we realize that like our minds and bodies are united and that all people are connected in like in an a, a meaningful and a meaningful way that they cannot be disconnected, mm. then we can, then we start to remove some of the pain or then we work towards a world that actually acts like everyone is connected and that, that it's just, and that we're not actually different despite outward appearances of difference and looking at another human where you feel in your head that you are one person and they are another person. And there's a lot of space between you and we are very different and then realizing that what if we're not? Yeah. <laughs> like what if? What if it's the other if, reading, right? What if you do a right. close reading and go the other way, right? And that's and I think that's how I landed on the closing line was this core delusion that I am here and you are there is tells us everything that we need to know about the way the book is put together and what Jenny Offal tells us about Lizzie, like that these mundane details of Lizzie's life are both totally unique to Lizzie's experience of them right. and not unique at all. Yeah. Like who among us has not sat in the kitchen playing slobber frog while half having an argument with their spouse and also trying to figure out what to feed their kid for dinner mm -hmm. in some arrangement of those variables and lizzie's suffering is this like is this feeling that no one's ever had these feelings that she's having before like she's not talking to her friends about her no. existential or crisis. ben we don't or henry or ben right you yeah. know like we don't even know that she has friends she's just so deeply alone in it and mm. like convinced of the i think she believes the alienation and the loneliness and the implication there is that if she could believe the opposite right. she would feel different and i think there's a there's the second arrow here is not just that you don't the answer is that provide solace to others or at least appear to maybe um mm -hmm. Not only they do not provide solace to you, but there are no other answers. Like they right. actually make you feel worse. Yeah. Like the answer here, the other reading is well, okay, you could say one reading is a core delusion of Yuri there, and I am here, and that means that we're our our sense of our separation is only a sense; it's not the real thing. Well, the other reading right. is that is there is no connection at all; that we're mm -hmm. not even here together. We're not even in the same room together because I'm thinking about this. And you're reading a book about the Peloponnesian War, and yeah, we're so yeah. unconnected mm -hmm. that we're not—you're not even there. Yeah, and she wrestles with that too. Like early in the book, she talks about how she and Ben notice different things, yeah. and she likes it that they notice right. different things. That like one at one point, she remarks about like the drug dealer who lives in apartment five C, and Ben is like, "Who?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's like we, I think we've all had some experience of, of that. That like this thing that you see all the time and take totally for granted, you remark on it to someone and they have no idea, or they've never heard a song that you thought everybody knew the words to, or mm -hmm. you know something like that and it does remind you of it feels like it's a reminder of separation and I, I think she's really wrestling with that is how can we like how can we feel so separated if we're actually connected and or maybe we're not connected at all and what does that mean because if we're all alone then how do we mm -hmm. do climate crisis <laughs> then how yeah, do we change right. the future yeah. then yeah. aggregate action really feels impossible in a way that um 
you know, it, it, it's hard enough without feeling impossible, I guess is mm-hmm. one way of putting it. I guess we better wrap up. We've been going uh, a nice long time on that. Any other things to, to mention here at the end? I mean, I guess it's pretty obvious that we found it um, weird to say thrilling. I, I would say thrilling by turn, funny yeah, yeah. by turn, sad by turn, frustrating by turn. Um, let's go back to something you said at the top, which is it's not going to be the book club hit, which I agree with. Maybe now we've talked about it, it's obvious. But the reason it won't is because, I mean, pragmatically, it's not a great look for a book club hit that you don't know what's happening <laughs> for the first few pages. You know, right? I mean, yeah. it just, it asks yeah. more. Mm-hmm. The friction, the, the interpretive friction is pretty high. But also, I don't think this is a discomforting read. This offers, it, not, it doesn't answer solace, answers or context. It answers a question of relation, a question of other, you know, other experience of kind of investigating an uncomfortable half known truth. I think that a lot of us share, but then leaves it there. And it's even worse at the end, I think, than at the beginning in its own way or one way of reading it is that way. Yeah. There's this, like, I, I kept coming back to the notion of like searching and seeking and that it feels like that's what Lizzie is doing and to like grab another Buddhist term like buddhists talk about humans being hungry ghosts and that we're just like searching we're just walking like wandering around trying to find something that will fill up that space inside Um, and that until you're enlightened you're this hungry ghost and i think lizzie certainly has that quality and the conversations that you would need to have like in a book club about a book like this are the kinds of conversations that are like just incredibly yeah Right. Vulnerable and difficult and like intimate and personal. And they're the kinds of things that if you have them at all, you're probably having them with like uh, very close friends or your therapist or your like or poetry or some other outlet poetry, your spiritual advisor or your religious community. If you're if you're even having them, but like in the in the same way that like it feels scary to me to go like the concept of going to like see the marriage story movie with bob (laughs) feels terrifying like i both want to watch this movie and also don't want to know what he thinks about it Mm. i want to read these books and think about like these questions in my own life and you and i are very practiced at having conversations about books like this with each other and we also tend to talk about these kinds of questions but I don't want to have this conversation with a a, a group of like loose acquaintances, right. <laughs> like well, a I mean, like a maybe, book club. Tends to maybe to be. put it in slightly different terms. <laughs> the same reason that Wild is a great book club pick is the same reason this one isn't. Right, right. You know, I'm like the the the, the book, and this is not a disparagement of book clubs. I should say, I, I wouldn't want to oh, talk yeah. about this in a book no. club. Maybe an English seminar, maybe in this context of a different context. Mm-hmm. I think book clubs are wonderful, but the reason a Wild works because this is you would think this if lizzie read wild we we want her to do the Sherald Strayed thing wild is not going to work for lizzie no right but that is not something i think most club book clubs would, would wrestle with right that the sort of normal the within the normal range of available experiences practices worldviews there isn't an answer that can satisfy Jenny. I'm not saying that she, yeah, there's I something think, I know how to do that she should do. I hope people no, aren't hearing totally. me say that, but that includes everything I know, right? Like I don't yeah, have an answer, yeah, neither I does think, she. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. That like that wild works because Cheryl Strait is presenting her answer. Yes. And and she's not saying this is the answer for everybody. She doesn't say you should go out and hike the PCT and it will solve your existential crisis. Though people have read that. Found, <laughs> yeah, people yeah. have done it. And uh-huh. and I mean, nature does a lot of things for people. Um, 
But yeah, Jenny Offal and Lizzie are not saying in any capacity, here is the answer I found and here's how I found an answer. I think Lizzie isn't even aware deeply that she has these questions. I think that's right. I had on my list, and again, we're going longer than I said we were going to wrap up. She doesn't, there's not a lot of metacognition from Lizzie. You know, Virginia, Virginia Woolf might give some characters the opportunity to say, and here I am playing Slobber Frog while thinking about death or something like that. Right. Where that only happens in the formal context of them being next to each other. But Lizzie herself isn't integrating them. It doesn't seem to me, at least, mm-hmm. um, in that yeah, particular and I, way. I think there's an implication, too, that before you can even get to the answers, you like you have to be aware of the, fa- the fact that you're having a question and that before Cheryl Strayed finished the hike she was aware that she was having a crisis Mm. and she needed to do something to like sit in the crisis and so like she wasn't you know hiking the PCT and then sitting at night by the campfire doing like personal development workbooks she was just walking Mm. and being in her own head and Lizzie's like she's just so it's interesting we get that scene where Ben oh go ahead oh yeah I was saying Lizzie's just so far away from anything about that there's this Rilke quote that I love where he's like stop paraphrasing but like stop obsessing about getting the answers and just try to love the questions and maybe at some point you'll like stumble Mm. into living an answer and I think that's what Cheryl Strayed has done and that's what those like the memoirs of self-improvement and memoirs of like finding your personal answer to seeking and searching are about like first you made peace with the existence of the question and sort of along the way you found the answer but when you've when you've hit the point where you're just like casting around trying to find an answer to a question that you haven't articulated is when it feels really painful and difficult and i think that's what we're seeing lizzie do yeah i i think you're right at at one level if she could get to the place of i guess in the in the stages of grief right about Mm -hmm. the universe that she seems to be having if she could get to acceptance then it might not matter what the next thing she finds is but it would be enough that she believes it's possible to move forward and she's not in the place of moving possible I suspect, though, that one thing Jenny Offal is trying to do here is saying, well, that's great, but you know what? You're still hiking the Pacific Trail and climate departure is going to happen. <laughs> in tw- right? I mean, right. I think there's, yeah. a meta, there's a meta commentary that even that is rearranging um, deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, that, right. You're, even if this meditation group in the library basement worked, like, yeah. the world is still getting hotter. Right, right. Yeah. And, and there's still weather. <laughs> Rebecca... Thank you so much. Um, thank you guys thank you. for um, picking this book and listening along. Um, hard to say, hard to know that we'd get something as juicy as this. I, <laughs> I, I can't be a prisoner of the moment when I read something that blows my mm. me away. But sometimes I'm right, and I feel like this one it, it is it's it does everything I liked about de- department department speculation. But I think it's a more fascinating work it's it's mm-hmm. better to, to use a very um unuseful phrase in these situations <laughs> um it's richer it's more relevant it's brave um, and brave and um terrifying uh so if that sounds like your idea of a friday night can we recommend <laughs> weather by jenny Off? let us know what you thought yeah definitely uh, we got some emails about people reading kitchen confidential and coming over to the bourdain side which i was thrilled ah, that we could be a part of that and that our commentary was useful in any way um, about Kitchen Confidential. Um, these have been so fun, and we're looking forward to do more. Um, Rebecca, Jeff. I guess we'll talk about news tomorrow. I am here, and you are there. <laughs> Pretty good. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>